no good sentence starts with the words boomer on TikTok. Hello, welcome to 10 Cent Takes, the podcast where we hit you with a roundhouse kick of comics factoids, one issue at a time. My name is Jessica Frazier, and I'm joined by my co-host, comic commando, Mike Thompson. And I would like to stress that it is comic and commando with a K. Because Chuck Norris never learned how to spell, apparently. He never learned how to spell. (laughs) The purpose of our podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. If you're enjoying this show so far and want to help us grow, it'd be a huge help if you'd rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and Good Pods, because that really helps with discoverability. Friendly reminder, we've pulled our content off of Spotify, given how the platform is continuing to actively promote voices spreading vaccine disinformation. Today, we'll be delving deep into the vaults of 80s wackiness to discuss the time that Chuck Norris became the star of a comic and animated TV series. It's going to be a wild ride, folks, so buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into that, Mike. What have you been reading or watching lately? I was browsing Hoopla the other day and came across a cool series called The Realm, published by Image. It's written by Seth M. Peck, and it's illustrated by Jeremy Hahn. You know, and it's your standard post-apocalyptic scenario where you have a group of badasses trying to escort some scientists on a very important mission across the wasteland. Except this time the apocalypse is... A situation where Earth was invaded by creatures straight out of fantasy book tropes. So instead of zombies and mutants and killer cyborgs, it's a planet full of orcs and dragons and necromancers. It's a really fun setup and it just rips along for three volumes. But the only downside is there's only three volumes. The series was put on hold back in 2019 and they haven't picked it back up yet. Mm, That sounds cool. Yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised by it. Very cool. What about you? What are you reading or watching? So I joined TikTok at the end of last year. Yeah, you did. (laughs) Yeah, I did. But other than silly little videos and reiterating my queerness to the wide world of the internet, I haven't done too much nerd content yet. I mean, that will change. (laughs) However, I did recently get enough followers to go live. So I did a couple of live streams of an unboxing of a blind comic short box that I bought the other day from our local comic shop in Petaluma. Brian's comics. And it was like 150 plus comics and a couple of trade paperbacks for like $50. It was super awesome. Yeah, I meant to ask, what trades did you get? Because I watched the first unboxing that I wasn't really able to stick around for the second one. Yeah, so it was, there was one that was actually just a novel that was kind of scary stories, which I was super stoked about because I love scary stories to begin with. And then the other one was one I hadn't heard of. The trade paperback that I got is called Deadly Class. Oh, yeah. That's uh, Rick Remender, I think. Yes. Yes. Correct. Yeah. They made a Netflix series out of that, if I remember right. Oh, you don't say. I I think it was. I can't remember, but it was. 
it was tied to the Russo brothers, the guys who did the Avengers movies and stuff like that. I didn't watch it. So like, that's kind of all I really remember about it. Mm, I got you. I got you. Well, this is like the sixth in, you know, sixth volume or whatever. <laughs> but I mean, it looks really interesting and the art style is really cool. So, you know, I'll be really out of context, but I'm definitely going to check it out. And then I'll probably go back and check out the other ones, too. I'm sure I'll like it. Yeah, solid plan. Yeah. So within that whole box as well, I also got a comic called Cemetery Beach. And one of the folks on my live feed commented that they really enjoyed the series. So I definitely wanted to check it out. And luckily, I got issue one in my blind box. So that was added bonus. And it's a story about an off-world colony. It's also dystopian. So that was kind of funny that you brought up a dystopian one as well. (laughs) Great minds, man. Right. And it's pretty gritty. It's a little graphic, but I'm definitely going to check out more issues online. It's pretty cool. I'll see if that's on uh, Hoopla and check it out. Yeah. Well, starting with this episode, we'll be featuring promos from other podcasts out there who we feel you should be listening to. We've built up a great support community with a number of other shows and want to help them grow just like they've helped us. So please enjoy these promos and then check them out if they sound fun to you. Hey there, this is Frankie Sparks. And this is Scott Eisenberg. We're married. And we have a podcast called Shoot the Flick. Every week, Scott and I introduce each other to a new movie the other one has never seen. We talk about it, give our thoughts on it, and also share some behind-the-scenes fun facts. We want you guys to come along and enjoy the movies with us. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Shoot the Flick and check out our weekly episodes every single Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and pretty much anywhere else you can find a podcast. Come and listen to us now as Frankie and I Shoot, shoot the, the Flick! Hey, this is Chris and Lance asking you to check out our podcast, Comic Book Keepers. Each episode features one hero, villain, team, or series. Learn history behind a wide variety of comic book characters and creators. Get recommendations on what storylines to read. Uncover how characters were created. Highlight adaptations in media and answer comic fandom's what-if questions. You can find us on all major streaming platforms or on most social media at CBKCast. And remember, keep your friends close, but your comic books closer. So, Mike, our main topic is a zany one for sure. (laughs) And I found this comic when I was in Portland, Oregon at a shop called Books with Pictures, which I think I've mentioned on here before. You may have or you may have posted it to our social media stuff. I can't remember. I did both, maybe. Probably. Hey, follow us on the (laughs) social. But it's a great shop. It's got a variety of really diverse comics and graphic novels and also includes a a curated collection. And it was within this collection that I found the absolute comic gold that immediately drew my attention on a yellow background in big, bold, black letters that flooded a third of the top of the cover read, Chuck Norris, Karate Commandos. So I'm like, okay, what's this now? (laughs) So of course I had to grab it. And holy shit, what a rabbit hole this has been. Now, I do want to point out that this is spelled commandos with a K. (laughs) 
so this episode was obviously meant to be hosted by my with a K self. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> would never dream of taking that away from you. I would roundhouse kick you if you tried, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with sources. So I checked out the IMDb profile and bio on Chuck Norris. Uh, Chuck Norris's bio on Wikipedia, the autobiography Against All Odds, which that is a trip, (laughs) and boxofficemojo.com for some box office information. So (laughs) we're going to have to break this down a couple of ways, because as I was doing my research, I found that not only was there a run of comics from 1987, But there was also an animated TV series with five episodes. And so, obviously, I had to find and watch these. And we did have to, Mike and I both separately, we purchased copies of the DVD version because we weren't able to find a place to watch them completely online. But (laughs) I don't know if it was worth it or whether I feel cursed. I don't know. I feel a little cursed. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. Like I posted about it tonight on Twitter and you know, several people were sitting there and they're like, oh, I should watch that. I'm like, you really shouldn't. Oh, like, it's... no. <laughs> My partner, Sarah, sat with me and watched it. I believe her words were, oh, yeah, I'm down for this train wreck. And uh, and by the end of it, <laughs> we were like, mm, mm, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know if this was a wise use of our time. That's just it. It was only like an hour and a half, but I kind of feel like I've lost more than that somehow. (laughs) I'm so excited to just shred it later on. Hard same. Hard same. The 80s were a fucking wild ride for cartoons. But Mike, would you give us a rundown of what exactly was happening kind of in the the 80s cartoon realm? Yeah, sure. Um... So, like everything terrible about the 80s, this all starts with the Reagan administration loosening up broadcast rules that made it easier for children's programming to go from wholesome entertainment with some educational elements to basically being half-hour toy commercials. It sounds like a really glib summary, but that's really what it boiled down to. And if you are really curious about this, go back and listen to our first episode, because that's all about Saturday morning cartoons and how comic books tied in. But Marvel was really involved with crafting stories for some of the biggest brands of that era. And some of them had really long-lasting comic book series. But basically, the 80s gave us stuff like He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, Thundercats, Gem and the Holograms, My Little Pony, G.I. Joe, and Transformers, most of which had significant comic book presences. And most of these shows would regularly introduce new characters so that kids would then go buy the associated action figures. It was... It was this crazy decade of capitalism just nakedly targeting young kids and through them, their parents' wallets. Yeah, that's very a very good description. <laughs> Plus, you're the expert on the topic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that. I'll, t- I'll take Saturday Morning Cartoon Expert and add that to my resume. Yeah, I think you should. So now that we have a vibe of the times, let's get into the vibe of the man, the legend. The conservative oh, Chuck God. Norris. <laughs> like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. I really should have whiskeyed up my, uh, my soda tonight. Why don't we drink during these hard episodes? We need to think this through better. Uh, probably because we'd be really hungover by the next day. Oh my God. Definitely with this one. Lord. I definitely don't suggest making this any sort of drinking game. 
you will need to have an ambulance called. <laughs> Chuck Norris will kill you in a drinking game. Oh my god, he will though. He's right behind me, isn't he? He's right behind <laughs> all of us. Good lord. It's not great. <laughs> so, let's talk Chuck, who was actually born as Charles Ray Norris, March 10th, 1940. So, not too far of a stretch for a stage name. Real original. And from his account, his childhood was pretty rocky. His dad was an alcoholic who left the family during his adolescence. And he went to the Air Force out of college and married his high school sweetheart, Diane, after he was in the service. Which, might I state, his whole autobiography was just him telling on himself in a lot of ways. And from the sounds of it, from his own words, he was a super absentee husband and father. <laughs> so that's, that's cool. I'm not really surprised to hear that. I don't know much about his early life. I kind of know a little bit about his presence, like, you know, as a movie star. And I know more about his political activism than I want to. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't surprise me based on the guy that he is now. Yeah. When he wasn't stationed away from his wife and family, he was spending hours at the gym while working full time and then just leaving to go do martial arts championships and stuff. Like, for example, he talks about the birth of his son, Eric, between talking about karate and his other accolades, and has this throwaway sentence that legit amounted to, I was excited about the birth of my son, but I was obsessed with karate. And then cue him going into talking about karate techniques. Like, yeah, that, that checks wow. out. Like, God damn it. <laughs> and then the whole book was like that. I <laughs> Okay, so my personal feelings on Chuck Norris aside, can you imagine having to have like a like a parent teacher conference and having him just walk in the door for like a problem kid? He wouldn't be the one to walk in the door. He's <laughs> oh, never I know, home. but I'm just <laughs> I mean, that would be terrifying if we're going to be incredibly hypothetical like to say that he would be present enough in his child's life to go to like their school to do something mundane like talk to a teacher. Yeah, I shouldn't be surprised, but I just I didn't realize that he actually served in the military like so many, so many of these action stars who fetishize military imagery and all that have like no connection. Yeah. I mean, like Sergeant Slaughter, the pro wrestler from the WWE that also was really popular around the same time, didn't serve in the military despite claiming that he did. Oh, oh, stolen valor. I know, right? I don't love that. That's gross. Yeah, well, I mean, like, all these guys are gross. Whatever. Oh, 100%. Speaking of uh, gross, <laughs> <laughs> I would like to introduce something absolutely wild that I found, and I would like for you to read aloud for the class, Mike. And I've left it with the American flag background because I feel that the vibe is right. Do I have any option to swipe left on this? Nope. Ugh. I'm the boss this episode. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay, so we're looking at Chuck's code of ethics. I'm sorry, like where is this from? <laughs> like <laughs> it's from him. He like wrote a code of ethics like Jesus during Christ. his heyday, like while he had all the we'll I'll get into his a little bit more of his history, but I really wanted to like set the scene for who this guy was before we get too much farther. Okay. <laughs> okay. Chuck's code of ethics. 
I will develop myself to the maximum of my potential in all ways. I will forget the mistakes of the past and press on to greater achievements. I will always be in a positive frame of mind and convey this feeling to every person that I meet. Blah. <laughs> I will continually work at developing love, happiness, and loyalty in my family and acknowledge that no other success can compensate for failure in the home. I will work for the good in all people and make them feel worthwhile. We're only halfway through. Yeah, sorry, everyone. Sorry, not sorry. If I have nothing good to say about a person, I will say nothing. I will give so much time to the improvement of myself that I will have no time to criticize others. I will always be as enthusiastic about the success of others as I am about my own. I will maintain an attitude of open-mindedness towards another person's viewpoint while holding fast to what I know to be true and honest. Well, that's not true. Fuck that. <laughs> I will maintain respect for all those in authority and demonstrate this respect at all times. Again, patently false, but whatever. I will always remain loyal to God, my country, my family, and my friends. And finally, I will remain highly goal-oriented throughout my life because that positive attitude helps my family, my country, and myself. Holy shit. And if you notice, that's part of his arm in the background. Yeah, it's like it's just a bunch of toxic positivity mantras. Like Ooh, that, he's super toxic. One of the companies I worked at, this I'm surprised that this was not sitting on the wall of the CEO's office because it was one hundred percent how he operated. Where yeah. you have to be positive all the time, and if you're not, then you're a negative influence and you'll be gone soon. Oh, a lot of his book was, well, I just put my faith in God and like everything worked out, man. No. Like, and I was like, that's no. a huge place of privilege that, you, you know, that you just were okay in like these situations. And a lot of the time when he says like God was involved, it was like something he very like heavily orchestrated. And I'm like, I don't know why you think that God was involved in that when your heavy hand was in there. Nope, that's real bad. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of Chuck in the military, during his stint in the Air Force, he was stationed in Korea and started learning Tang Soo Do and apparently got really fixated on the martial art and, according to him, started practicing for multiple hours a day while also doing his duties on base. He left military service in 1962 and was told by God pretty much to move his young family to L.A. And his words were like, it just felt right. Where was he moving from? Do you know? I think in the Midwest kind of a okay. place. Yeah, he had kind of moved around. And so I didn't honestly, I don't care enough like to like track I mean, him that yeah. hard. You know what I mean? I listened to I the whole book. You. That's as much effort as I can put into that. I listened to it on two times speed, by the way. Yeah, fair. That checks <laughs> out. There were so many times in the book where he was just like, I just knew God was telling me I was on the right path kind of business. And it was like, I, my dude, you just knew, huh? Yeah. You just knew. And he began opening karaoke, uh, karaoke, good Lord. Wouldn't that be awful? <laughs> That's awful. And Chuck began Norris doing karaoke. <laughs> what a terrifying thought. It would just be a bunch of old country songs that he just talks, <laughs> just speaks them. Pulls a uh, William Shatner. God, yeah, no, that's yeah. all I can see happening there. And then he'd think he did a really good job too, mm -hmm. like his acting. 
Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> so he began opening karate studios and competing in championships. And this was at a point when karate was just becoming popular in the United States or more popular. And there were apparently not very many studios when he got started opening his own. So that was kind of the catalyst for him doing that. Like Asian martial arts, like they're a pretty prevalent part of American culture these days. But up until the 50s or 60s, like I don't think they were really all that prevalent. I think especially probably not until the 60s or 70s. Like I could be way wrong, but mm-hmm. I feel. No, that's that's what I was reading. I feel like there was like a pretty heavy amount of anti-Asian sentiment still going on post-World War II. And it probably took a while for that to fade as, you know, oh, as much yeah. as it did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Until, you know, we just start appropriating the things and then it's okay again. But only if yeah. we do it. Only do it if we do it. Yep. Nope. <laughs> Overall, he opened more than 30 karate studios in the 1960s. And by doing so, he started meeting other people involved or interested in martial arts. And that kind of expanded out to movie stars as well as and, and other folks in Hollywood. And ended up that he was urged to act or try acting by Steve McQueen, who had sought out Chuck Norris in, according to, again, Chuck Norris, which I'm, I am taking him as maybe a, a not-so-reliable narrator. I was going to say, like, how reliable <laughs> of a narrator is he on a scale of one to Rob Liefeld? I mean, I, I took everything with kind of a grain of salt, and there were times <laughs> when I just, like, openly started laughing when yeah. he's, like, when certain things were said, or I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so. check it out. Yeah. And so apparently he first met Steve McQueen, who had sought out Chuck Norris in order to get karate lessons for his son, apparently. What a, what a random and wild gateway into Hollywood is fucking Steve right? McQueen. Yeah, exactly. And the way Chuck Norris put it was like, yeah, like everybody was telling him that he should go see me for like lessons. Sure, Chuck. Okay. <laughs> of course, I mean, right? Maybe that's true. I just... I mean, maybe it's true, but it just sounds a little self-embellished, but whatever. So he first appeared in a one-line action role in Wrecking Crew in 1969 and was asked to play the villain opposite Bruce Lee in Way of the Dragon in 1972. So things started ramping up for him. I mean, that was kind of his big break. Yeah. Yeah. And so then his first starring role was Breaker Breaker in 1977, which we talked about on the US One episode where he made $10,000 for his role. And he's also starred in a few other films at the end of the 70s and early 80s, including Good Guys Wear Black, which he helped to write. That was in 1978, and he made $40,000. I'm just going to throw the numbers out there because he just started making more and more money. Uh, A Force of One in 1979, making $125,000. And An Eye for an Eye in 1981, and he made $250,000 for that film. So that was his salary that he was paid for those roles? That's what he was paid for those roles. I was going to say, because like I, I know that some of those movies like did gangbusters business, so I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, no, that's that was what he was paid. Yep, yep. <sighs> he also did a movie called, I think, The Octagon, and it's dreadful. Like, it's oh, no. one of the worst movies I've ever watched. I think I was so bored within about 10 or 15 minutes that I noped out of it, but it involves him fighting ninjas, and then he keeps on doing like the narration voiceover. So you hear his internal monologue and, oh man, it is bad. But that was right around the same era. So Delta Force, which was released in 19, 
1986 had an estimated budget of $12 million and grossed $17.77 million and was ranked in 52nd place for 1986's box office, just below Flight of the Navigator, which was 49, and above the re-release of Song of the South, <laughs> which was 53, and Howard the Duck, which was 54. So if we're feeling where this thing was landing... It's funny because, like, I first of all, like, I saw Song of the South in theaters in '86. I remember going to that with my family. But like, Delta Force is pretty synonymous with Chuck Norris. I would have assumed that it had a higher box office gross. I would have thought so too. And I don't know why, if we didn't go to see this movie to begin with, we got so enamored with it at some other mystery point. I mean, I wonder if it was one of those movies that just really took off on home media or something. God. Which then, then you just got to question the public. It could have just been one of those cases where it was a shittier version of The Princess Bride. <laughs> yeah, and this, this film is deemed to be one of the bigger catalysts for Chuck Norris's boost in popularity and success at that time. Though, again, I'm not honestly really sure why after watching the film, which I felt I had to do for research. And like, let me be the first to tell you not to waste your time. I watched it so you do not have to, my friends. <laughs> you really jumped on that grenade. Mm, I sure did. I, you know what? I have a commitment to this podcast, Mike. <laughs> You're I'm a professional. Committed. Pains me to say. <laughs> so the movie itself was made to tell the story of true events, completely true events from June of 1985 about a plane hijacked by Lebanese Shia extremists who were demanding the release of the Kuwait 17, who were individuals who had been arrested for the bombing of the American embassy in Kuwait. So there were American passengers, along with a few Holocaust survivors and a Greek pop star, who were held hostage and ultimately saved by the American military, and in particular by a group called Delta Force. Now again, I want to stress that this was based on a true story, so none of the critiques of this film are surrounding the events themselves or the survivors of victims pictured. Though the film itself was incredibly heavy-handed, as one can expect for the subject matter, and for it being the 80s. But it was a lot of, like, damn America, you're great, which honestly <laughs> is Chuck Norris's vibe to begin with. That was very much an 80s vibe, too. I don't know what the genre would be called. Would it be called, like, action patriotism? Something like that? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a good way to describe that. Absolutely. What's funny is he talks in his book, that's not even funny, what sucks. <laughs> in his book, he talks about how whenever he visits another place, it makes him realize how much better it is to live in the U.S., which is such a gross take. It's such a fucking gross take. I was like, like you didn't just say that. <laughs> like, <laughs> The book came out in 2005. I'm just going to put there. But honestly, that doesn't excuse half the shit he said because it was already 2005. I mean, for a guy who very much appropriated Japanese culture with his karate image, I'm sorry, like the cartoon that we watched, there's like kanji all over his fucking sports car. Yeah. I don't know, man. (laughs) But I did tell you already that it's okay if we do it, Mike. Oh, right. Sorry. Sorry. My bad. God, I fucking hate that shit. Obviously, everyone knows I'm incredibly, I have incredible sarcasm surrounding that. I don't actually think that should be the way of things. Also, although Chuck Norris appears throughout the film, he really doesn't do anything 
other than waiting to jump into action and being angsty with his captain when it's not time for him to dive in. And he's always somehow late as well to the action, even though he's just waiting around. And so at one point, the captain even says, he's always late. Um, my guy, you had one job. Like, and where are you now? <laughs> if I didn't know we were talking about Chuck Norris, I would have actually assumed we were talking about, like, Steven Seagal. Dude, right? No, absolutely the vibe. Definitely that same wheelhouse. So, Mike, I sent you a clip <laughs> while I was watching this because there's also this part where he's on a motorcycle and he climbs into the belly of a plane that's actively taking off by, like, a rope. And it's, like, the cheesiest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I just was howling with laughter when I watched it. I'm, yeah, it is. <sighs> Like, it's a very flat scene. Granted, I know that cinematography and everything has evolved a great deal since the 80s when this was made, but I actually felt really bored watching it. Yeah, exactly. But it was also just like, what, what's going on? Why did it need to escalate to this point, honestly? It's because he was late again, by the way. That was the whole point of that. Well, of course it fucking was. Uh, and this film is so obviously from the 80s, including like a side story about a Cabbage Patch doll in what is so obviously one of the most shameless marketing deals <laughs> ever. Is this like an actual like official Cabbage Patch doll? Oh, 100%. Like they're literally, they, it, oh, they show it from they're purchasing the doll to it being a whole plot point of like, daddy, take the doll since you're being separated from us. And then the oh guy, come, you know, the end, he's got the doll and he's clutching it and he can meet up with his daughter again and give her the doll. Oh, my fucking God. Holy shit. <laughs> there are so few items that are like such absolute time capsules representing the 1980s as Cabbage Patch dolls. Like, yes. it's, it's fucking wild. Ugh, so that was hysterical. And the other part that really kind of was funny, but also drove me nuts, was that there was like this funky, upbeat, like 80s music, like, and even during the serious parts, it would still be the upbeat, funky music. And I was like, what? This is so strange. This is so odd. <laughs> I, you know, I got to say, like, I love it when movies or TV shows are inappropriately scored. It makes me so happy because it's just it's one of those things where you're like, so many people had to, like, watch this and go, yeah, no, that's totally fine. <laughs> exactly. And I was like, we're we're like on a plane and there are like terrorists oh, so with good. guns. And it's like, get to bat, get to get to do. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. We should at some point we should interview Jared uh of Barry of Sound about that and just get a yes. perspective from him on that. The worst scored comic book movie. Oh god, I would love that. So in the same year that Delta Force came out. The animated series Chuck Norris Karate Commandos aired. And I have the intro here for us to check out. Okay. You wouldn't mind watching that bad boy. Okay, give me one sec. I'm going to cue it up. Norris. I love how they started out with this like Chuck Norris. terrible live action, action bit. And then they like Chuck Photoshop Norris it into... 
a really underwhelming cartoon. It's great. Well, like, what's up with the seizure-inducing lightning at the beginning? I don't know, man. It's really bad. And I mean, like, yep, there's the car with, <laughs> with the kanji all over it, and then... Yeah, and then we get the introduction to... Oh, God, fucking too much. I literally the enti- every episode where they showed that after the first one Sarah or I would sit there and scream we hate you I can't deal with it they say his name Why did we so many times his- I literally was just gonna say that <laughs> Like, it's so many times it doesn't make any sense <laughs> it was probably in his fucking contract he's like you have to say my name at least 20 times within the first minute of this show or I'm done I'm out and they were like yes Mr. Norris yeah so there's this term called semantic satiation which basically means you hear a sound or a word so many times that it loses meaning to you and I swear to God, like his name just became sort of white noise throughout the show because we binged it. So we watched all five episodes at once. And I swear <laughs> his full name is said dozens of times each episode. Oh, yes, absolutely. At least dozens of times. Yes, it was painful. And we were texting a little bit while you and Sarah were <laughs> first watching the cartoon. And yeah, we seemed to have some really big feel so do you want to give us a quick description of the cartoon and your thoughts <laughs> yeah sure okay so chuck norris takes time off from being a mediocre action star and a giant fucking homophobe to cosplay as a knockoff gi joe <laughs> accurate yeah i mean he tours around the world and helps the government thwart the villainous deeds of a group called vulture but I think they're only referred to as like the cult of claw in the show and the comic, but I've seen other things reference vultures. So I don't know how to credit them. He's assisted by a, you know, a diverse cast in quotes of basically they're comically offensive Asian stereotypes. The backstory is that Sarah actually speaks Japanese and lived in Japan for a while. And when the sumo wrestler came on about, I think halfway through the second episode, they say his name Tabe and it caught her attention that one time. Tabe is Japanese for eat. So the sumo wrestler who is obsessed with food and basically eats in almost every scene that he appears in is named eat in Japanese. It's so fucking fat phobic. That's the level that we're dealing with this show. He has this diverse cast and it's a larger group. And so you don't really get a lot of time really with any of them. They just all feel kind of one dimensional. He and his team engage in extremely stiff martial arts battles. With Chuck himself, it's usually him fighting against Super Ninja, who clearly cannot get over the fact that in college he asked Chuck Norris out for a date and got turned down. Yeah. You know, we we never get the backstory on any of this stuff, but I, I was able to piece that together. I figured that out. I'm smart. I'm with it. <laughs> and like each episode opens and closes with moral, again, in quotes, lessons that aren't really related to the general premise of the episode, but they try to shoehorn it in. And at the same time, it's kind of funny because we get to watch him rocking extremely 80s workout clothes in his admittedly very nice home gym. And then he robotically reads whatever messages on the cue cards in front of him. It's amazing. Like his acting is just terrible. Oh, you can see his eyes going across, like reading the card. You're not, you're not wrong. 
I really have to wonder if he sat there and like read all this stuff and he's like, really? These are words that someone expects me to say. Okay, whatever. I'm cashing a paycheck. Yeah. And then the other weird thing is that there's no real beginning or end to the series. Like we never get an intro to any of these characters and we don't get any conclusion or payoff like across these five episodes. They feel like random episodes from a larger series, but you know, that's all there is. Yeah. And they just start at 11 and stay there. I'm like a Chuck Norris 11 is like a, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger five, I feel. <laughs> well, at least in the zaniness category. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great description of the show. Uh, there were only five episodes, although one of my sources said that there were six, but I can't confirm this because the title seems to be a mystery and I can't find anything about the plot line, so it may not exist. I mean, they may have written it and then they just didn't make it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Either way, it's not on this DVD set. Yeah, no. So, at any rate, it follows Chuck Norris's team in what, you know, the karate commandos themselves, including Too Much, who's a literal child he's supposed to be taking care of, apparently. Someone trusted Chuck Norris to just take care of a child by himself, apparently. So, yeah, they don't explain who this kid is, but in the comics, no. he sits there and he's like, oh, yeah, this is my son. And I'm like, wait, when did Chuck have a son? And he's like, oh, no, I adopted him. I'm like, oh, OK, sure. And it's like, yikes. Yeah. Yeah. You're putting him in the line of danger constantly. Yeah. Ugh. Then we have Pepper, who is the token woman and is the mechanic and in charge of tech, although her brother gets credit for this later in the series which is really annoying in the comic series. Like suddenly he's like the tech genius, like the last comic. And I was like, the fuck happened to Pepper? I don't know. Like she gets only a couple of lines in the episodes total. But like the other thing is in the comic, she refers to him as Uncle Chuck. And then he's like, oh yeah, she's my niece. And again, I'm sitting there going, where was this in the show? Yeah, it wasn't. And the fact that Reed and Pepper are twins, also not in the show. No, that's not possible because he's like, he is a walking ginger trope. He's got freckles and like bright red hair. Like I would have believed that he was Chuck's son. And then yeah, Pepper is presented a lot older than him, to be honest. Oh, she's older by eight minutes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the, well, and the weird thing is like Reed's outfit has him wearing like a hijab, which it's just, it's kind of an odd choice because it's like, a very Japanese-inspired costume, but then it feels like a very Middle Eastern piece of headwear. Yeah, yeah, he's... This whole thing is out of whack. I don't know what to tell you. And for some reason, apparently, like, Reed is just Chuck Norris's apprentice. That's, like, how he's, like, listed. I don't yeah, know what he's Yeah, his, like, teen ward or whatever. His, his Robin and Chuck's Batman. I don't know. It's fucking weird. You have two children here. Apparently, Pepper is a child as well. And then you have Kimo, who's a samurai, and Tabe, who you mentioned already. Yeah. And, well, and the best part about Tabe is he goes around with like weaponized symbols, is the only way I can describe him. Yes. And, and they have the Chuck Norris logo on them. Exactly. Which is just like so fucking over the top. Like, give Tabe his own fucking logo, man. Yeah, right. It's like having a wax stamp, but it's like, no, you can only have Chuck Norris on your wax stamp. It's like, why? <laughs> I want my own wax stamp, damn it. <laughs> also, Tabe, I don't think, got an action figure. I was looking that up. That's fucking rude. Right. 
So the episodes have the following zany titles. So one was Deadly Dolphin, in which Chuck Norris is for some reason an expert at training dolphins, question mark. I, okay, I genuinely was sitting there and I'm like, I feel like that was a sex move. Like when they announced <laughs> the title, I was like, mm. I'm like are we sure about this? Like, oh. Okay. Number two was Target Chuck Norris, wherein Chuck Norris has a hit out on him, apparently. Number three is Terror Train. And I only have two words for you, and it is Robot Laser. Like, uh... <laughs> least interesting name for a weapon <laughs> well and not only that but when he sat there and refers to the terror train in his bookend live action appearance you, you could almost see his soul leaving his body it was kind of amazing <laughs> there were a couple of times where he was just like reading and i was like buddy this is like the last <laughs> thing you want to be doing right now <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. I think that was the episode where he was like rocking the half shirt too at the gym with short shorts. Yes, he had a crop top on. I was like, girl, I love it. (laughs) For someone who spews a lot of anti-queer nonsense, buddy. Buddy. I was thinking that. I was like, you walked like you just walked out of the Castro, especially for the 80s, you know, like, come on. (laughs) Oh man. What would Chuck Norris's drag name be? Oh, gosh. Roundhouse Rhonda. Yeah. Uh, So the next one we have, number four, which is Menace from Space. He steals a rocket to follow some bad guys, but it somehow takes off like a plane does, which, sir, (laughs) that is not how rockets work. (laughs) Okay, but we need to take a moment to acknowledge... That that episode is amazing because the way that the bad guys steal the space shuttle or whatever it is, is they parachute in some Cajun weirdo who has crocodiles on parachutes. Yes, and then they like, that's right. They they crash into like, I don't know, like the head of NASA's office and then Chuck wrestles it into a closet and locks it in there. And then it's just <laughs> seems like the cleaning lady's problem now. I'm like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Whatever, she's minimum wage, she's not people. Exactly, given zero fucks about those around him in reality. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And then, when they are in space, the animators couldn't decide and stick with a way that gravity should work, so they were, like, walking normally, and then someone would, like, float slightly or just, like, move a little slower. It just, it it was not consistent, it didn't make any sense. No. (laughs) Like, floating sometimes. Well, I mean, okay, so that actually kind of checks out because Ruby Spears was, you know, the company that was making these cartoons and they were competition with Hanna-Barbera. It was like they had an office in L.A. and then one in Rome and they were just cranking shit out. There's another scene where, you know, they're in Japan. I think with the one with the robot laser, the terror train episode. Robot laser. They showed Chuck and his and his crew on the bullet train, and a big part of the plot is that Super Ninja climbs underneath and then detonates a bomb on the train's wheels. And basically, they drew it like an Amtrak train, but with a bullet train nose. And the thing is, is that that's not how bullet trains work. They operate on maglev. <laughs> so they have wheels when they pull in and out of the station. But then after that, there's no wheels to blow up. Like... <laughs> And then, you know, and then they take it to like Mount Fuji to like exchange the laser or something like that. 
and they draw Mount Fuji and I'm like that Mount Fuji is just a mountain like it's that's all it is and the way that they drew it it's like the Himalayas I there was not a lot of research done into this cartoon series Uh, let's just acknowledge that and move on oh a hundred percent hundred percent I just wanted them to like decide and like fucking go with it is all I'm saying like I don't care if it's right just like (laughs) make make a concise decision you know what you're asking for? Too much. God damn it. <laughs> Way to steal my joke. Oh, I'm sorry. You're not sorry. Don't you fucking lie to me. As I howl open mouthed. This is how resentment builds between podcast hosts. <laughs> So, the fuck was I before I stole your joke? Uh, Let's see. Hold on. I'm looking. I'm, oh, here it is. Five. Yeah, fucking five. This is why I didn't want to remember. <laughs> so, five. Good Lord. Here we go. We're almost done, everyone. Don't worry. <laughs> so, this was the Island of the Walking Dead. And the island is called Voodoo. If that's any flavor for how this is going to go. It's all incredibly racist. Uh, that is all. Yeah. It's like, that's, that's all you all need I'm to saying. know. Yeah. All in all, these were horrendous. <laughs> um, I also found the stereotypes obnoxious and annoying, you know, aside from being completely racist. And I know you messaged me again. You messaged me about too much. He's literally a child. And he keeps getting kidnapped. And the villains go, oh, we're going to kidnap this kid because Chuck Norris would never want to see a kid get hurt. But then it's like, what the fuck do you think he's doing when he's having the kid fight crime on his team? He's literally putting him in danger every damn time. So no, Chuck Norris doesn't give a fuck if something happens to this kid. Not really. Chuck literally (laughs) takes him into the swamp full of gators. Like, I don't know how else to tell you this. Here, help me with this. No problem. The logic isn't there for me. Bad guys. Ugh. Let's move on to the comics, which I'm I'm sorry, this isn't going to be any better. <laughs> now, these comics were published under Marvel's imprint Star Comics, which were geared more towards younger audiences than their main label, which catered to teen and above. And these were a direct result of the popularity, existence, of the show of the same name. <laughs> Unconfirmed either way. <laughs> I think they were just trying to make a buck. Yeah, I mean, Star Comics is really interesting because these days it's like, you know, the issues are really highly sought after on the secondary market, but they were just producing these as licensed tie-ins for a lot of the stuff. So the original Marvel, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, I think the Silverhawks cartoon had a, an adaptation done under Star. Mm. Thundercats and Masters of the Universe definitely had some of the longer lasting series, but I don't think any of them... I don't think most of the series lasted for more than about a dozen issues. G.I. Joe and Transformers were under the main Marvel label, and they were actually really popular. That's fair. Well, thank you. Keep well, you know, I got to earn my keep. <laughs> yeah. Might have kicked you off if not. So, good. <laughs> All right. So, each of these comics features a different member of the Chuck Norris karate commandos as they kick ass question mark on Chuck Norris's team of commandos. 
With four, yeah. So number one is called Super Cruiser and was published in January of 1987, was written by Joe Duffy, penciled by Steve Ditko, inked by Art Nichols, lettered by Phil Felix, colored by Glynis Oliver, edited by Don Daly, with Jim Shooter as editor and chief. Jimmy boys, back at it. (laughs) This was actually like right at the period of time when Jim Shooter was like really revitalizing Marvel too. Right after Shooter really hit a home run doing the original Secret War series for Marvel, which was like a huge sales success. Mm. This is the issue that I purchased from Books with Pictures. And this one follows our favorite character too much. I hate him. I hate him too. But apparently that's like his name. Like even his teacher in the classroom says his name as too much. And it's like, the fuck is going on here? Uh, So he's in class and daydreaming about Chuck Norris, you know, as you do. When suddenly men with guns and face masks burst into the classroom. And Chuck Norris has to use the super cruiser vehicle to save the day. Along with the other commandos. And somehow with the help of too much trippin' fools, of course. They also spend a lot of time focusing on a side plot with, like, too much not having done his book report. Which was like, wow, that's really what we're going to focus on right now. Yeah, no, so so the novel that they're supposed to have read is called oh. The Children's oh. Story by James yes. Clavel. And it's like a super dystopian, anti-communism parable. And it's, like, Jesus not appropriate for kids. So... I don't know. Okay. Uh, What is happening? (laughs) I feel like they were just like trying to be funny and like, you know, for an older reader, but who knows? Yeah, probably. Mm, As I sound disappointed. So issue two was published in March 1987 and was written by Joe Duffy, penciled by Steve Ditko again, inked by Mike Esposito, lettered by Felix and Lopez, edited by Don Daly with Jim Shooter. Once again, back in the seat as editor-in-chief. So this one's called Margie, and it's Reed and Pepper's story, because apparently they don't get their own stories. Chuck Norris and company are tasked with guarding a computer called the Banana 7000. What? I think what it was was it may have been making fun of the Apple computers at the time, because the the mid-to-late-80s, Apple computers were getting real popular in schools and stuff. And they were right. Yeah. Yeah. And they were also like, if you look up like old 1980s Apple, like magazine ads and stuff, first of all, they are like works of art. They are so cool, but they really were presenting themselves as an alternative to DOS computers and IBM machines. So my guess is this was like meant to be a tongue in cheek reference to an Apple computer. I'm a little embarrassed. It took me this long to figure that out. I didn't figure it out either until you were like, hey, right now (laughs) oh so they're guarding it against the cult of the claw and somehow pepper is tricked by the sounds of a cat scratching outside of her door while guarding the computer and reed is manipulated by the titular character into being somewhat out of the way so that the claw can steal the computer and chuck norris and the commandos to the rescue they were able to successfully defeat well guard the tech let's say yeah yeah so moving on published in may of 1987 and written by joe duffy with breakdowns by steve ditko and finishes by john d'agostino and lettered by phil felix 
colored by Glennis Oliver, edited by Don Daly, with Jim, motherfucking shooter, as the editor-in-chief. Issue 3 is titled Tabe's Story, and is basically about Tabe lying to everyone about how he met Chuck in order to impart some sort of vague message to the person he was talking to, or moral. However, when Kimo heard several stories and asked Chuck about this, he said that he had met Tabe in a noodle bar after he'd asked him to pass the soy sauce. I roll. I'm a little embarrassed. I kind of liked this story. I thought it was kind of cute, but at the same time, it's also rather cringy. Yeah. I like see it, why you would think that. It's I've, I landed on cringe, but, you know. I kind of liked it. I didn't say I fully liked it. It was just like, no, all right, that's, that's cute. I'm like, I don't hate it. I think that's the highest praise I can offer the series. I didn't hate this issue. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Good. I got a little worried there for a second. <laughs> and the final issue is called Kidnaped. <laughs> Was it, was it actually, like, misspelled? I didn't even check. There, every single time, and this is not the only time that I have seen this, every single time that kidnapped was written in this story, it was spelled kidnapped. It was spelled with one P every single time. But this is not the first time. There was another comic that we read recently, and I didn't bring it up, but I wish I had now, where I was annoyed because I was like, could you fucking stop spelling this word wrong please what what was the other comic i can't remember okay i'm gonna have I mean, to look at the, the things we we read so much stuff all the time i was gonna say we read a lot but it was so something we talked about yeah so yeah it wasn't great and this was published in july of 1987 written by howard mackey penciled by alex uh Saviuk, inked by phil felix lettered by petrus scotese Colored by Don Daly and edited by Jim Shooter this time, actually. Apparently he wasn't. He didn't get the chief this time. (laughs) Sorry about it, chief. Not chief. The plot is that someone's daughter is kidnapped by some baddies and uh uh-oh, she has diabetes. So there's a time limit and she needs her meds. Of course, Chuck Norris and team, you know, casually scuba to the boat that they're on and save the day, uh, you know, along with some fat phobia. (laughs) I did not dig that they constantly brought up Tabe's weight. like. Every single issue is super unimaginative that they couldn't find some other sort of attribute to, like, call out. Yeah, it's uh, it's not great. I mean, you don't have to make fun of the fat character. That's the other thing. You don't have to. In the 80s, like, that was a big trope was, like, the comic relief on a lot of shows and stuff were, like, the fat guys. You know, it does not make it okay, but it's just like, you know, okay. Like, I remember, like, I, growing up, like, I was a pretty fat kid, and... I remember at one point someone told me that they expected me to be funnier. I was like, fuck you. Damn, that's pretty fucked up. Oh, yeah, I've been chubbier my whole life. And so it's like, you know, from people feeling like they could just make comments about my body. Like, I oh, very yeah. vividly remember I was like washing a window at a, at a cafe I worked at. And one of the customers is like, you know, if you wipe this way instead of that way, you won't jiggle as much. Like, literally no what the fuck and like i'm not even like i'm a mid-sized fat person i'm not even a really heavy person i'm a pretty normal i mean i feel like everybody's a normal size but like i'm a i'm a pretty i would say i'm a pretty normal sized person and so that was just like such fuckery and obviously still sits with me i was really overweight until about the middle of high school and then i dropped a lot of it Mm -hmm. but like i remember 
encountering one of my neighbors who I hadn't seen in a couple of years and she would not drop how much weight I'd lost. And it was like, and it made me really uncomfortable. And like, and it's something that I don't understand is that people will constantly comment on your weight. Like that, that is something that everybody feels entitled to share an opinion on. And it was disgusting to me that, cause I've also lost like, and I've gained it back by now. I don't give a fuck. But like, there was a point where I lost about 65 pounds, like over a period of time. And I was disgusted at how much better I was treated in general. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's a perception that like, you know, people who are overweight have, have had some sort of moral failing. It's this concept that like here in like, and I don't know about in other countries, but here in America, at least it is, it is presented as fatness as being somehow, you know, failing morally. And it, it's really awful. Like if you were just a better person, if you just like tried harder, you wouldn't be as fat as you are. That's mm -hmm. the whole vibe. Yeah. And there's so many different real reasons why you might have the body you have you know and so it's just it's so frustrating i mean we've talked about how like for a while i was really fit and i would run 10 plus miles every other day and lift weights and referee roller derby and i never had defined musculature it's one of those things where i knew that i was fitter than about 95 percent of the people that i was in the gym with but at the same time, I was not as visibly fit as they were. And eventually I got over it, but it was something that I really had to struggle with for a while. That was the same experience I had when I was running half marathons because I was like a chubbier person, but I was running a half marathon without stopping. I, I wasn't the fastest person, but I was doing it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the pandemic has, has definitely uh, <laughs> taken its toll on my fitness. Like I, I had already stopped running for a while, but I was still eating like I was. And then when the pandemic lockdown said, I was like, all right, this is going to be great. I'm going to like do a bunch of body weight exercises. I'm going to get back into shape. Nope. Two years later, I'm like, maybe I'll just scoop the ice cream directly into the Fruit Loops. It's fine. <laughs> I love that. Oh. Anyway, oh. sorry. Tangent yeah, over. No, no, that's perfectly fine. I love a good tangent. So Mike, after reading through these comics, what do you think? Ah, <laughs> uh, man. First of all, like I was shocked when I saw Steve Ditko was the penciler for most of these books. That is the dude who co-created Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, and now he's doing a shitty Chuck Norris comic. Like, okay. God, how the mighty all. Yeah, it's funny how these books don't actually focus on Chuck for the most part. Each issue was mainly about a different member of his team. And I don't understand also why they made Chuck Norris blonde in the comic. Like, it's very weird. But I mean, they're also really bland villain of the week stories and made less of an impression than the cartoon itself did because there was a lot in the cartoon that I legit hated. And so parts of that are just pretty much seared into my memory right now. <laughs> but everything about the comic is just it's so forgettable that I'm honestly straining to remember much about it at this point. Yeah, it was pretty forgettable. And quite honestly, it was not interesting. I ended up scanning through most of them because i was like i i don't have the patience to read everything on this page in a meaningful way <laughs> i don't yeah. have that patience <laughs> it was very bland yeah yeah now mike i know that you have a lot of feelings about chuck norris these days as well yeah would you care to elaborate further about this <laughs> you know rants absolutely welcome yeah so i'm gonna I'm just going to be up front and say Chuck Norris can fuck off into the sun. 
don't get me wrong. I was absolutely one of those guys who would chuckle at the Chuck Norris jokes that were going around the net in the mid-aughts, but I soured on him real fast when he came out in support of Prop 8 in 2008. And then in 2012, he really, really started to show his true colors. Like I remember reading about how he was trying to prove a dirty money conspiracy as being the real reason that Boy Scouts were becoming more accepting to queer members. He also hitched his wagon to Newt Gingrich in that election cycle, which is just crazy considering how blatantly awful Gingrich is. Like that was the election cycle where it was revealed that he had tried to have an open marriage, like absolutely insane that someone who loves to sit there and tout his morality would associate himself with that guy. Chuck Norris has also allied himself with people like Ted Cruz and Mike Huckabee and Roy fucking Moore in various elections. He keeps allying himself with the worst of the worst, and I can't understand for the life of me how he still has fans. And any time that someone says that they like Chuck Norris, it doesn't matter whether it's ironically or for real. They get serious side-eye from me, and the conversation ends real quick. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we also got a fun tidbit from our avid listener, Dottie, who made us aware of a reference, or I would say a parody, on Chuck Norris in the 2012 animated Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series as Chris Bradford and his two rough crew. That would be the number two Ruff spelled R-U-F-F, and crew with a motherfucking A. <laughs> and it looked just the fuck like him. She sent yeah. some screenshots. It's a dead ringer for Norris in this animated series. I love the fact that we actually have started to generate a community of fans who will sit there and tell us about this stuff when they find out what we're doing. Yeah. I know, I would not have known that. And I've seen some of that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series, and I just have not seen that one episode. All right, what do you say we wrap up this wild topic and move to our brain wrinkles? Yeah, I'm down. Let's uh, roundhouse our way out of here. So for those of you who aren't aware, our brain wrinkles are that one thing comics or comics adjacent that has been sticking around in our brains since the last time we chatted. Mike, what is it for you this episode? (laughs) Oh, man, I think this one's actually going to take you by a bit of surprise. So we're recording this on February 11th, which is when that new movie Marry Me finally released with uh, J-Lo and Owen Wilson. So I've been seeing nonstop ads for this the last couple of weeks around the net, and it just, it looks insipid. But I was really surprised to learn it's actually a comic book movie. I'm sorry? I guess it was a webcomic written by Bobby Crosby and illustrated by Remy Mokhtar, and then it was printed into a physical book, and Comic Book Couples Counseling retweeted a post the other day by John Rogers, who wrote the screenplay for the movie, that stated he came across the comic back in 2008 when he was at Comic-Con and eventually turned it into a movie. Let's be honest, I'm probably not going to watch it anyway since Rogers wrote Catwoman, so I'm not <laughs> really a fan of his work. <laughs> but yeah. like but I just I can't get over that. This news has absolutely blown my brain. Holy shit. Wow, that's wild. Right? That is uh, that was an unexpected twist. Well, I I will say that Roger's post was actually very positive, where he was like, this would not have happened if I hadn't come across this at like an indie artist table. So whatever project you're working on, finish it. 
show it off. You never know what it's going to lead. And it was it was really sweet. Like, I don't want to sit oh. there and bash Rogers too much. I'm just saying I'm not a fan no, of some like of the that. stuff he's done. But yeah, it was very wholesome and very funny. And my jaw was just a gape. So yeah, so that's a that's the wrinkle from my end. What about you? Damn. Well, listen, I'm going to use my brain wrinkles to bitch about how out of touch Chuck Norris is. <laughs> oh, oh, do it. I love this. I'm here for this. Like horrendously out of touch. Like, again, he basically just tells on himself that he was an absentee husband and father for the first family he sprang into existence. But then, like, Chuck Norris had an affair while married to his first wife and, like, found out years later that the affair resulted in a whole other child. But then, like, he gets this new wife who's hella younger than him after he divorces his first one. And, like, no shade on that. They're both adults. They both already have children. And he's clearly super nice to her kids and he like mentions them and stuff and like Q talking about his own children disappearing mm. <laughs> they're just out of the picture at that point like we don't hear about them anymore not great but then he has this like vision that he needs to have more kids with this new wife and he's like in his 50s at this point and he's had a vasectomy and so they had to go in and get the sperm out so they could do what was probably a wildly expensive IVF treatment and then he whines and goes into great detail about what he had to go through and having his sperm removed, like in detail about what the medical procedure was. But then like just mentions like, yeah, the pregnancy was really hard on her and like she was bedridden. Like, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> what? And they like knocked him out. They put him under general anesthesia. So it's not like he was even fucking there for it. That's oh, what drives me the fucking nuts. Like she had to. And so then they did this weird IVF where like they made like they did the embryos outside the body with the eggs. Like they removed everything and then they like implanted the embryos. So they implanted like four and like two of them are viable. So then they're like chilling with twins. Right. And they have the twin babies and they're preemies and they're in the NICU. and. He has the audacity to call them miracle babies, but, like, you forced that shit. You made that shit happen. <laughs> you grew them outside of a body on purpose. You used them science. Into it. That's not a miracle any longer. I don't know how much you're forcing it here. <laughs> like, honestly. And then he talks about how they were just like, oh, we want to leave the NICU early. So they just casually hired 24-hour nurse care in their home and it sounded like a couple or several nurses mm -hmm. and it's just like wow it must be fucking nice the whole time i'm thinking there are women in this country who have medical bills they would never be able to pay due to like having birth or giving birth or they have to be in really bad situations when they're giving birth because they can't afford it it's it's insane that you just be like well we can afford all of this insane amount of health care here it's and just be like casual it was gross Ugh. And it was a lot of the toxic, you can pull yourself out of anything. Oh, and George Bush and his fam are great, and I'm glad he's my homie. <laughs> Vibes. <laughs> that book was so fucking wild. Oh, man. And again, the audiobook was, that I listened to is narrated by his son, Michael. And I listened to it at double speed, like I said, because I just needed it to be over. But that made it kind of crazier. <laughs> 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 but I've read it, so you don't have to. Uh, no, this is what I'm you. getting at. I appreciate that. <laughs> Listeners, this is also your pass. You don't have to read this anymore because I have read it for you. Amazing. <laughs> it was trash. <laughs> he didn't write it himself. He had help. I just can't be bothered to 
check to see who helped him. That guy will probably be happier if we don't say his name in association. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's my rant about how fucking out of touch Chuck Norris is. Yeah. Um. I'm not going to disagree with you on anything that you said. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know what, everyone? I This sounds like a great place to end our episode. So thanks for being here tonight. And until next time, we'll see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to 10 Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us. So text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson written by Jessica Fraser and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who goes by Look Mom Draws on Instagram and TikTok. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is TencentTakes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica is spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen, but not Spotify. Stay safe out there and support your local comic shop. I like that extra bit of salt. <laughs> <laughs> Just pouring salt on the wound.